and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I sprayed me in my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. Before we get to today's guest, uh, I just want to tell you a little bit more about myself and about the podcast. So first, I work as a mental performance coach where I get to work with people both in business and sport to help them unlock possibility, unlock potential in themselves. And so we work on their mindset and we help to try to cultivate a mindset that will allow them to enjoy success at their craft. So I'm really in the performance space and I love what I do for a living. And so I decided to fire up this podcast to chat with other performers to find out how they have intentionally set their mind to be their best. So hopefully you are enjoying these conversations. And when you do, we would love it if you shared it with friends, with family on social media. It really does help us expand our reach. And for those of you that have already done that, we are very grateful and hopefully you will continue to support the podcast that way. The other way that you can help support the podcast is by going over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And over there, you'll see an opportunity to just throw us a couple dollars a month and help support the podcast that way. We don't have any advertising on here, so we are relying on Patreon to help uh, generate some revenue to help us keep this thing going. Now for today's guest, Dr. Mark Golston is an intentional performer, and he's going to talk about what he's done throughout his life and why he's chosen to go into the career that he's chosen to go into. So he works as a psychiatrist, but he also has been a high stakes crisis psychiatrist, FBI hostage negotiator, negotiation trainer, and he also coaches founders to become CEOs. Uh, he has helped traumatize people heal and thrive in addition to surviving and, and coping. Uh, this conversation is deep. Uh, Dr. Golston is going to talk about suicide and ways that we can try to prevent suicide in the future. Hopefully you are paying attention and, and realize that suicide continues to be a massive issue in our society. Recently, Anthony Bourdain took his life, and I think a lot of people were taken aback by that. I remember a couple years ago when Robin Williams took his life, and uh, just last night I was actually watching the incredible documentary on Robin Williams' life on HBO, and I highly recommend that. And if you live long enough, you will know someone who either has attempted to kill themselves or has 
uh, committed suicide. So this is obviously a very serious issue. And suicide is something that I've always been uh, interested in and, and concerned about. But as we will talk about in this conversation, it's not where my focus is in my career. So it's great to get Dr. Golston's perspective and try to learn from Dr. Golston. So today, uh, I'll ask a few questions, but really let him riff and explain what he's learned over the years, having worked with a lot of patients who are suicidal. And hopefully, if you are somebody who is, who is having suicidal thoughts, this conversation can help you on your journey. And hopefully, if, uh, this, if you're someone who knows somebody who has had some of these thoughts, that you can be an advocate for them as well. So I really think that this is an important conversation. The format is a little bit different. We really go into the weeds on, on suicide prevention, and, and we kind of stay there. So it's my hope that uh, this conversation can help some people. And we often get into performance and really focus on performance. Um, but if we're not here, we can't perform. And so to all anyone who might be struggling uh, with those thoughts, there is help. Please uh, go get help. I have had clients who I have worked with who have needed help and have gotten help and uh, thankfully are, are seemingly on a better path. And um, depression and anxiety are something that a lot of our society struggle with. Um, and so you're not alone. And certainly there have been people who have had suicidal thoughts and have lived uh, tremendous lives. So thank you for Dr. Galston for all the work that he's doing. Thank you all for listening to this important conversation. And without further ado, I present to you, Dr. Mark Galston. Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast. Excited to have you uh, on the show today. I wanted to start, just get an idea of how you came to be interested in specifically the medical world, uh, interested in people and how people function. Uh, so give us some insight into your background and your studies and, and how you ended up going the route that you went. Okay. Uh, I think my interest in medical school came from, first of all, my background. I was raised in a kind of culture where you either went to law school or you went to med school. Those were the kind of things that you were uh, encouraged to do. Uh, but I was always interested in people. I went to UC Berkeley and I was interested in doing things and kind of helping the down, downtrodden and uh, just helping people that seemed to be hurting. So it seemed to be natural to go to medical school. And I went to medical school and uh, what happened is after about uh, two years, I hit a wall uh, with depression. And so I dropped out of medical school. I was passing everything, uh, but I took a leave of absence. And when I took a leave of absence, I went to work in a blue collar job, which I still remember fondly because it was just so simple. What, mean, was, what, what was the blue collar job? I used to go around to liquor stores and bars and I would put up displays, Heineken windmills, and I would I would barter with the bartender. If you put this windmill up there for a month, you can have one for your bar at home. And a lot of bartenders, if you go to their homes and you go into their basement, you're probably going to get cancer because it's just covered with neon. I mean, they love these collectible, these signs that light up and, you know, Schlitz you probably never heard of or Carling Brewing, or Budweiser, and the Budweiser, I mean, all the all this crap, but they loved it. So I would barter with them in order to get the, uh, in order to get the, those windmills up there on top of their bar. And 
I love the job. I mean, I'd be in these filthy bars and I'd climb up, I'd climb up these rickety ladders. I'd see rat skeletons up at the top. I loved it. I mean, this, this is, I, I really found the level that I probably belonged in life. Uh, and, and so I did that for a year. My mind came back to that level and then I went back to med school. But then after three months, it happened again. And what would happen as I was reading books, I was highlighting everything. The books were all yellow because I was just trying to hold on to the information, but I really couldn't. So I asked for another leave of absence. And what people don't understand is when someone takes a leave of absence, uh, medical schools lose matching funds. And so I met with the dean of the whole school, and I don't remember that. I think I was pretty down. And uh, I don't remember the meeting, but I got a call from the dean of students who cares about students. And uh, he called me into his office, and I read a letter which essentially said that I'd been kicked out. Uh, or as the dean of the school would say, he was advising the promotions committee that I'd be asked to withdraw because I was miraculously passing everything. So I came from a background, not an unusual background, where your value is what you do in life. Your value is how you perform, what you produce. And if you can't do those things, you're really not worth very much. Can you can you talk about mom and dad and where that value and how that value was, was passed down to you? Well, you know, they uh, were both depression age. My uh, My mother was more traditional. My father was you know, worked all his life and uh, worked very hard. And he was a controller and an accountant. But, you know, he always you know, was a little bit worried about would he be able to provide for his family. And But he came from that background that, and it wasn't that unusual, you know, your worth was what you did in life. And if you did poorly, you know, then you weren't worth very much. So when you're going through these bouts of depression, was that what was at the core of it is, you know, who am I and, and self-worth or what was what was tugging at you and pulling at you during that time? Well, I think what it was is that uh, my mind couldn't think at that level in medical school. I wasn't able to hold on to information. Now, as I said, I imagine that if I went out into the world, I could probably function at a much lower level. Uh, as I as I had done during my first leave of absence, but but the point is, you know, I wasn't thinking that clearly when I asked for a second leave of absence. So I wasn't thinking, well, I just go out there and I'll function at a much lower level. I was I was just really feeling stuck and down and kind of useless and worthless and all those things and. But this is what changed everything. The dean of students called me in and he showed me this letter that essentially said that uh, I was kicked out. So coming from that background of, you know, not any worse than other parents, but what we'd call conditional love. You know, you feel loved conditionally on what you produce. And, uh, and so imagine if you come from that and you're feeling pretty down. And what the dean of students said to me, and I don't know if you'll appreciate this because you're, you know, you're a performance guy, you know. So I'm not sure if this will, if if this will touch a soft spot in you, or even if your listeners even care about soft spots, but you're going to hear it anyway. So, uh, and he, he, when he said you being kicked out, what happened is, I, I felt 
almost like a, a gunshot wound. It's almost like it's like I my head dropped, and I know what a gunshot wound feels like. I had a perforated colon about twelve years ago. I almost died, and it felt exactly like that. I went oh, and then I kept rubbing my cheeks with my hands because I thought I was bleeding. You know, I just kept looking at my hands, and it was tears. But I think I was 100% pure grade, raw, and vulnerable. So if he had stepped in and said, man up, come on, you know, uh, you know, uh, I don't think it would have worked. But this is what he said to me. So imagine this. I don't even know what unconditional love is. And he said, Mark, you didn't screw up. You're passing everything, but you are screwed up. But if you got unscrewed up, I think the school would one day be glad they gave you a second chance. So I then start crying from just his kindness. I, I didn't understand it. And I got kind of embarrassed. I couldn't look at him. And then he said, and imagine hearing this. So I don't know what unconditional love is. And he said, Mark, even if you don't get unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do another thing the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Mm. He said, because you have goodness in you, and it's a, something we don't grade in medical school, and you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness, and you're not going to know it till you're 35, but you're going to make it till you're 35. And you deserve to be on this planet, and you're going to let me help you. And so he arranged an appeal to the uh, the promotions committee. He was just an anatomy instructor. Hey, Mark, bef he, before before you go on, as you tell that story, what feelings come up for you? Oh, I'm reliving. Uh, I'm reliving the reason I was born. You know, people have been asking me lately. I, I ask people, "How are you doing?" And, uh, and I remember I spoke to this kind of stodgy CEO. Uh, he was kind of a stiff. And, I, and somewhere in the conversation, I said, how are you doing? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm doing the best I've ever done in my life. And he said, what's that about? And I said, I'm living the reason I was born. And this guy on the phone said, oh, and I said, evidently you're not. And so I'm going back to, I think, something that changed, which is, he. and this is what mentors are. Mentors see goodness in you. Mentors see potential in you. Mentors see a future for you that you can't see. And mentors reach in there and they help you land in that future. So I'm more of a mentor than a coach. What's your distinction there? Well, a coach, often you're hired by a team or a company to get results, get performance. And what I do is what, what I'll say to the company is, I'm going to help this person be the best that they can be and land where they where they need to land in their future to have the best life possible. Uh, that may lead to good performance, but if it looks like they're not a good match, I'm going to suggest they go to another company. 
And so because because I was just repeating over and over again what this fellow did for me. And it's interesting. So after that, I became a suicide specialist for 25 years. What drew and, you what drew you to that? Well, because I, I, I think he had reached into me and and it flipped a switch. It's interesting. I think the moment that I be, decided to become a suicide specialist, I remember I was on rounds uh, as a, I think, a third-year medical student at the at the Veterans Hospital in Boston, and we were on rounds uh, at a VA, and you know, and a guy. I'm someone who tunes into people. Into, into the feelings, especially the despair. And I reach in there and I join them in the dark night of the soul and I just keep them company and then they start to cry and they start to get better. I don't throw solutions at them. I keep them company in hell. But but I uh, but I think where it all started is I remember I was on rounds and uh, we were outside some veterans uh, room and you know, and I was a little bit intimidated by it. And the oncologist was saying, oh, we need more chemo. And the surgeon said, I think he needs surgery. And, and the radiologist said, we need more x-rays. And, you know, and then the other medical students were, were, were uh, you know, sounding off. And I'm just there feeling, God, you know, this is way above me. And then the nurse came over to our group and said, oh, didn't you hear Mr. Jones jumped off the roof last night and he's in the morgue? And I swear, Brian, as clear as day, uh, I heard a voice that said maybe he needed something else. So I had incidents like that. Uh, and and actually, the second time I took time off, I needed to get away from where I grew up, Boston, and I needed to not go to the West Coast, where I went to undergraduate school, so I went to Topeka, Kansas, and there was a place there called the Menninger Foundation, which is a psychiatric institute that's now in Houston. And I basically did a medical student uh, clerkship at Topeka State Hospital, and I basically hung out in the middle of winter with schizophrenic farm boys. And I was able to reach them. I mean, uh, and I remember I... I I'd never felt really good at anything that was that meaningful since I was in med school. And I remember going over to the psychiatrist and saying, is this legitimate? And I said, what do you mean? I said, you know, I walk around, I talk to these people, they seem to open up to me. I mean, is this legitimate? It's not like anything else in medical school. And they said, no, it's legitimate. You have a knack, Mark. All right. So, so Mark, where, where do you think that comes from for you, the ability to reach into people and hold space for them? Well, I think what happened is, uh, and I, it's interesting because one of the things I'm most excited about is I have come up with a an algorithm uh, to reach people in the deepest despair and depression and talk them out of it. So uh, so I've, I've, I've found a way to scale empathy so I don't have to do it. And I'm you know, speaking around the country and how to do it. But I think what happened is having experienced it firsthand, I, uh, and I'll tell you, you know, if, if you want to do a segue into suicidal thinking, what, what causes people to often 
uh, feel suicidal is because they can't stand the pain. And here's the sequence. And if you've ever known anyone who's been depressed or suicidal, this will help give you a framework. So as we're, and you may actually know some athletes, you know, because athletes don't do too well if they haven't prepared for life after, uh, after their careers. Many of them don't end up well. Um, but the way it works is you're going through life and you're heading towards what you're heading towards and, and suddenly you hit some obstacles. And when you hit obstacles, you go into stress. But as, as, long, as long as you have some tenacity and perseverance, you can push through the stress. You can stay focused. And, and you do a lot of that with teaching people how to perform under stress. But if the stress becomes too much, it crosses over into distress. And when it crosses over into distress, your main goal becomes getting out of the distress. That's when you turn to drugs. If you're, if you're on the spectrum or autistic, you start hitting yourself in the head. So, but what happens is when it's not, it doesn't help, you start, your mind starts to fall apart. In fact, some of the terms we have, uh, uh, unglued, wigged out, losing my mind, out of sorts. It's literally, you feel like your mind is coming apart. And when it keeps falling apart, falling apart, falling apart, there's actually a point at which you feel, you get panicky and you feel like you're going to shatter. And I know it sounds irrational, but it feels like you're going to shatter. And if you've never felt that way, uh, it's not unlike if you've had a kidney stone. Or it's not unlike, <laughs> it's not unlike if you're a pregnant woman who has taken all these Lamaze trainings and then you're about to, you want to breathe your way through the whole thing. And as soon as you start getting ripped apart, you say, get me that epidural. Give me that epidural. And if you have a kidney stone, what you say to the doctor is just kill me. Just kill me. So imagine that going on in your head and your mind. And that's, by the way, the, po the point, because I've worked with veterans, when they're looking, down the, uh, they're looking down the barrel of a gun, and what happens is sometimes you, what you do is you pair with death to take the pain away. So I wrote an article called Why People Kill Themselves. It's not depression. that had 530,000 reads. Uh, in about four days after Anthony Bourdain uh, died by suicide. And what I talk about is that people don't die, don't die from suicide from depression because there's hundreds of millions of people who are depressed who don't die by suicide. What happens is they die from despair. And if you break the word despair into D-E-S-P-A-I-R, it means feeling unpaired unpaired with the future, hopeless, meaningless, pointless, uh, worthless, useless, powerless, helpless. And when you, uh, when you feel unpaired with all those things, you pair with death to take the pain away. So Mark, what I'm wondering is, I think I got to a crossroads in, in my studies where I was either going to work with people that were good and wanted to be great or people that were, you know, elite and just wanted to get better. Um, or I could have gone on to more education where I really would have had to work with people who had bigger challenges than hitting a baseball. And yeah. that's not to say that they don't have their challenges as well, but my focus was going to be 
as you said earlier, on more of the performance side uh, than what, what I would call the clinical side. Uh, why was it that you were drawn to going towards something that is dark, something that is uh, scary, it's messy, it's, um, you know, I think I think a lot of, and I, the reason I ask, I think a lot of people stay away from that because it's easier to, to not go toward that space um, for our own for our own lives. So I'm just curious about what was it for you that was drawn to uh, helping uh, people or helping to prevent suicide in the future? Well, I'll tell you. Um, well, I'll give you an anecdote, okay? And then, and then uh, hopefully then I'll hopefully get back to your question. Uh, so I was a heavy hitter in, in terms of seeing suicidal patients. And it really went to another level with one patient that I'll call Nancy. And she'd made three or four suicide attempts and had been in the hospital several months every year before I started seeing her. And I used to moonlight at a state hospital to pick up extra money uh, once a month where I'd do the admissions. And, I'd, uh, and sometimes you don't sleep for 36 hours or more. So I remember I was seeing her on a Monday after I hadn't slept for 36 hours, and she never made eye contact with me. But I, And I'd been seeing her for about six months and two, three times a week, and I didn't think I was helping her at all. I mean, but that was the longest she'd gone without a suicide attempt. And so there I was sleep-deprived, and she doesn't make eye contact with me, and I'm looking out in the room, and suddenly all the color becomes black and white. So I'm looking out a room that's black and white. And then... Uh, I started to feel these chills and I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. And so I did a neurologic exam on myself. You know, I, I touched my nose, I looked at my finger, I tapped my knees uh, and I didn't know what was happening. And then I realized I was all there. And then I thought, I don't know what happened, but I think I'm looking at the world through her eyes and feeling what she feels. And because I was sleep deprived, I blurted out something that normally I would keep to myself. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to, to get out of the pain. And I thought to myself, did I say that or did I think that? Because I think I just gave her permission. I'm really screwed here. Mm -hmm. And at that, uh, I realized, ooh, I said it. I'm in trouble. And then she looked at me. In fact, not only she looked at me, she looked right through me, right into my eyes. And I thought, I got a little nervous. I said, what are you thinking? And I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding. I'm overdue. And she looked right through my eyes and she said if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain maybe I won't need to mm. and then the color came back the room came back and she came back so the reason I'm drawn to it and I'm trying to teach it in the world is because when you connect with people in hell and keep them company there you, they start to cry and they start to feel hope. There's nothing better than that. I mean, as, as the person helping them. Yeah. What does it do for you? Well, first of all, I mean, as I said, 
it it reaffirms my you know kind of the reason I was born. I'll, I'll, I'll t- can I tell you a funny sports story? Absolutely. So I was a reasonable golfer, you know, when I was younger, two handicap, which isn't that bad. Wait, 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 and, wait, wait, uh, hold on. That's not reasonable. That's very, very good. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, and that was before graphite shafts and persimmon woods, which are like the size of your thumb. Yeah, we but, would call uh, you the we would call you the modest golfer who nobody nobody really likes the modest golfer who's actually very very good and and the rest of us are are working our tails off to try to get to that right, level. So right. anyway, go on to handicapper. Yeah, there you go. So I'm uh, so I you know I, I you know over the years I'd give talks on uh, you know motivational talks and I remember I was giving a talk to uh, a group of bankers and you know because I'm talking about soft skills I always feel like uh, you know I'm too soft for these hard driving bankers. And so, and I also know, at least in California, that a lot of them play golf. And so in order to sort of win them over, because these are he-men and I'm just the soft skills guy, I said, hey, any of you uh, play golf? And about two-thirds raised their hands. I said, really? I said, you know, I used to play golf. And uh, uh, and if I play about six times a year now. And you know, if I play six times, I can, uh, you know, three times I can break 80 and, you know, maybe I'll flirt with 75. And, and they look, I wanted them to look at each other like, he can shoot in the 70s and he doesn't play. And I said, furthermore, you know, if I'm on a par five and two and uh, the other person says, uh, hey, want to go grab a drink? Uh, I won't even putt for the eagle. Oh, oh, he's nuts. I've never been on a par five and two. He is crazy. And so I got their attention. And I'll say, and I'll tell you what it's all about, uh, which hopefully won't be lost on you, but it was totally lost on them. I'd say when I was fourteen or fifteen, I think I was a, kind of lonely, and sometimes I'd just go out on a golf course, and sometimes I'd play forty-five holes in a day. Uh, sometimes I'd play sunrise till sunset, and sometimes half of the time I'd be playing alone. And I could do things with that golf ball. I could fade it. I could draw it. I, uh, I, I still couldn't hit a one iron with a, with a draw, but I was pretty good. Uh, but what I realized is I was romanticizing loneliness. I was lonely, but it didn't matter because I could go out there and do great things with a golf ball. But the reason I don't do it anymore is I can find someone who is stuck in hell and walk them out. To me, that's a 300-yard drive. So now you're coming back to this notion of what you started with, which is achievement and, and being achievement-driven achievement driven, and how a lot of us think that what we do is who we are. And for you, hitting that 300-yard drive isn't the same fulfillment as it is bringing someone out of a, a dark, dark place. Am, am I... Uh, oh, absolutely. 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 Um, like, uh, are you married or do you have kids? Married with two little ones, a two and a half year old and a one and a half year old. So if you have any advice or tips, feel free to mentor away because uh, last night our our two and a half year old, uh, <laughs> we just got him uh, into a bed. He's not in the crib anymore and uh, he, he likes getting out of the bed in the middle of the night and um, we're, we're trying to figure out how to, how to handle that and uh, it's a big challenge. So, so if you have any thoughts, feel free. Um. Well, I have some thoughts, which are, because uh, one of the things I'm talking about with suicide, uh, 
and, and you might understand this, when we're born in the world, when we're infants, I mean, early on, where we can't even see for the first couple of weeks, uh, we're helpless, powerless, and vulnerable. And so we attach to the world because, you know, we can't take care of ourselves. And a lot of how we feel about the world and our life uh, is connected to how the world attunes to us. So there's something called attachment disorder uh, for children who have problems with relationships later, but it's not really a problem with attachment. It's that the parents they have are abusive or they neg they're neglectful, they scream. Uh, the parents are yelling at each other, can you feed this thing? And what's happening is you're internalizing that. And if you internalize all that stuff, uh, you're scared and you don't even know what you're scared about. And that leads to personalities that then fixate on things, such as presidents, such as religion, such as sports team. And it's totally irrational. But if you fixate on it, it gives you something to hold on to. Whereas what you really want to do is help that infant develop inner an inner core. So I think all the fanatics in the world who fanatically attach to things without thinking about them have some sort of an attachment issue. Whereas, uh, and because a lot of parents have kids, but they don't know about how to raise kids. And so parents who are really self-involved want the kid to accommodate you. So, you know, a, a tired mom or dad is saying, just sleep already. Just, just sleep through the night. I'm not doing it on purpose. Or, you know, uh, can you put the nipple in your mouth? Well, stop putting it in my eye already. So, so, go ahead. So, one of the things that I'm hearing from you there is sort of this idea of mindlessness and just reacting based on learned emotion or, or, or thought. Mm -hmm. Totally. Uh, you're based in Los Angeles, and when when I've spent time in LA, I've always been amazed at uh, specifically how big mindfulness has become in Los Angeles, but also, I mean, it's all, it's all over the place now. Uh, so I'd love to just get your thoughts on mindfulness and also has mindfulness made its way into uh, suicide prevention? Uh, and I'm just ignorant to it. So I'm just really curious about oh, yeah. mindfulness. Uh, I think mindfulness is wonderful when it works. But there's a lot of people who feel like failures because they can't quiet their mind. They can't meditate. And, uh, and then people will say, well, just keep doing it. And, and it's never worked for me, mindfulness or positive self-statements, uh, because at my core, I'm a we. I'm not an I. And I used to feel less than other men, you know, who are I, I can do anything. But now I'm actually feeling better about the fact that I'm a we. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm going to give you a taste of the difference between listening to you and listening into you. And you tell me the difference in what it feels like to you. So if I'm listening to you, which I have been, you're asking me questions. Uh, I'm trying to answer them. You're being very polite and allowing me to go on tangents, which neither of us have any control over. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully I'm answering your questions and giving you an answer. But if I'm listening into you and I can see you because we're on FaceTime, uh, 
I think it's really important that you give quality information to the people that listen to these podcasts. It's almost the calling. And you're always looking out for something that will not just change their performance, but change their lives for the better. You're probably protective of them, so you possibly, and I hope this isn't me, every now and then you probably have a guest and you say to yourself, I can't broadcast it. This is horrible. And so you're probably protective of your listeners because they trust you. And it really matters to you. And I'm guessing even in your work that even though you're technically uh, excellent, uh, this it really matters to you that you you treat their trust, you know, with the utmost respect and care, and um, and responding to that. I'm, I may be wrong. I'm guessing uh, feels as good as you know helping them perform better. Is any of that true? Yeah. So. Um... For me, some of my the best work I've ever done have been with clients who haven't had success on the playing field. So I got into this to help people perform, but I really got into this to unlock potential or possibilities in people. And so uh, just because I work with a college athlete who struggles in on the baseball field doesn't mean that they didn't learn from that experience and from our work together. And then they take that to whatever they want to do in their life. And um, you know, there are plenty of people who perform really, really well, but have all kinds of other stuff going on in their life. So um, for me, I think I, I live at the intersection of creating space and having empathy, like you talked about, and also helping them focus on how do they uh, both gain wisdom and maximize. And maximizing is a tricky word because people maximize sometimes at the cost of wisdom. Um, but I believe in both. And so as long as we live in a capitalist society and um, as long as um, competition matters, and I do believe it does, and I believe that competition can often bring out um, some terrific qualities in us, um, as long as it's not a, a cost of who we are and who we want to be, um, that's the intersection I play at. Um, but to your point, um, I'm relationship based and, uh, that it always starts there. And that's why when we start this conversation today, I, um, I wanted to find out who you are, not just what you do. And so I think everything starts with who you are and, you know, to, to just go back to your original distinction as far as mentor or coach and, and how you see that. And there's another word, which is consultant and people wear these different hats. For me, coaching is about unlocking possibility, is helping people get from where they are to where they want to go. And how we do that depends on who the person is. So I'll finish this riff with the idea of mindfulness. Uh, for me, mindfulness is a framework. Uh, meditation is a tool. So mindfulness is observing without judgment. And certainly, I am not somebody who is always mindful, just like I'm never, I'm not always positive. Um, and just like my thoughts aren't always good thoughts. Um, so for me, I like, I like mindfulness because it just helps us try to create awareness. And mm -hmm. I think awareness to your point earlier about the fanatic, you know, it's, it's one thing if you're a fanatic and you're not aware of your, your fandom. Um, but if you're aware of it and you are vulnerable enough to let go and be appreciative of whatever you're around, I think that can be pretty healthy. 
Um, so if you have any thoughts on that, uh, would love to hear your thoughts. And then I have a, a really specific question for you as well, uh, as you were talking to me that, that came into my head that I want to circle back to. So if you have any thoughts on what I just said. Yeah. So I think awareness, um, is you, you can't be aware and be sort of self-involved with a lot of negativity um, so awareness really lessens reactivity unless what you're aware of is that you're being reactive. And one of my, I, I've been fortunate. I've had seven mentors. They've all passed away. My last mentor was a fellow named Warren Bennis. And if you look up the name Warren Bennis, he, he's one of the top three people who started the whole field of leadership. He was at USC. And one of, uh, one of his suggestions was be a first class noticer. Because when you notice, it's different than looking, watching, and seeing. When you look, watch, and see, you're an observer. But when you actually notice, which is a, a keen awareness, it takes you out of yourself uh, and it connects you with the other person. So if you're having a tiff with your wife, if you can stop... Uh, uh, actually, here are, two, here are two magical tips to stop any argument, which I'm sure you never get into. Um, the first thing is, uh, and it takes a lot of presence of mind to do this, ask yourself the question, what's it like for the other person right now? Just being curious of what their experience is without reacting to their behavior shifts your mind. And then if you add on to that, being a, a first-class noticer can take it all away. So some years ago, I remember my wife and I were you know, arguing and uh, she had said something and then I guess she was about to load up and then I, normally I would escalate. And, but instead of that, I, uh, I was curious about what she was going through and I said to her, I said, you don't like this. You don't like this very much, do you? She said, "What?" I said, "You don't like where this is going any more than I do, do you?" She said, "I can't stand it when we get into these things." I said, "Really, I can't stand it either." And then I asked her. I said, "Do you have any idea how we can take it to a different place?" And she smiled at me and she said, "No, but you're doing good." <laughs> but can you follow what I'm saying? It's a way of a, of uh, noticing uh, outside yourself. And and I'm more of a fan of interpersonal. So you're a performance person, so it's different. Well, but I'm I, a, I, I'll, I'll cut you off on that because that's the second time you said I'm a performance person. So uh, okay, sorry I'm going to, no, no, I'm just going to clarify. So for me, yeah, my work is, is predominantly in the performance space, but I work with teams. I work with, you know, organizations. So, um, you know, if, if you, uh, talk to any head coach or general manager of a, of a organization, they're always thinking about how do the, or at least the good ones are always thinking about how do the pieces of the puzzle fit. And so uh, some of my work on the performance side is always thinking about how is this team going to work with each other. And, you know, the other side of, of performance is, is leadership. So uh, I also work with people outside of the sports world on uh, how are they showing up 
for their employees and, and what it might not be. So for me, performance is, is just the space where we're judged um, and where we're evaluated and it's the arena. And so, you know, how are we showing up in the arena? To me, the, the best performers are vulnerable. Um, mm -hmm. they, they are uh, fearless enough to get into that space. Um, they're also fearless enough to know that how they show up in that space doesn't define them, like you said earlier. So just because they might have to have a certain amount of grit in that arena does not mean that they have to show up that way uh, in dealing with their kids as a parent. So um, I think the best performers in the world uh, have an understanding of their mind and how it needs to shift and what it takes to shift. So, um, you know, and that a shift does need to take place and it's not a mindless shift, it's an intentional shift. And so they do things intentionally, whether it's a routine, whether it's breathing exercises, whether it's their self-talk to visualization to get themselves so that when they're in the space that they can perform. Um, but I'm a human before I'm a performer and we're all humans before we're performers. So for me, you know, I would much rather be around a good person than a great performer. Um, but uh, I love working with great performers. So that just to create um, some clarity around that, because, um, I, you know, I, I'm not saying that a great performer has to be a good person. I actually don't think that's necessarily true. But for me, if I'm working with a bad person, I'm not working with them anymore. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's simple as that. And so um, for me, character matters. Um, but I, I think too often we do just say, oh, just, just be a good person and everything will work out. And I don't yeah. think that's, that's not necessarily true either. You know, there's an article that I read recently. It's an older article by Jerry Useem, I think is the name. It's from the Atlantic Monthly. And it was talking about how power uh, causes brain damage. And it was fascinating. And what it talked about is how, you know, people early on in their careers, they tend to be somewhat empathic because they know what the customer wants, the client wants, what the fan wants, and they deliver on that. But when they get a taste of power, what happens is their brain is bathed in cortisol and cortisol is connected to stress. And what happens is they start to lose the ability to empathize. And not only that, but when your brain is immersed in cortisol, it almost sets up a survival of the fittest between your neurons and nerve cells start to break down, cell membranes do. Whereas when, you're, when your brain is bathed in oxytocin, which is bonding, it's bathed in getting the cells to cooperate. And so what happens is if you're really power and cortisol and high stress driven, uh, what will happen is you'll start to lose neur neurons, which can add to a little paranoia because you're literally not playing with a full deck <laughs> because uh, your, your brain cells are set up to be in a survival of the fittest mode and you start to lose uh, lose them. And I thought that was fascinating because I'm going through that now because for 25 years, I was mainly empathic. That was mainly all I did as a suicide specialist. But now that I'm getting to speak on a national stage and I speak globally, it's really heady stuff. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's exciting to be there in front of a large audience and, uh, and you're getting their attention and all that. And, but the best part of me, it's almost goes back to what you just said about, Hey, I'm not just a performance guy. 
The best part of me is when I'm really listening compassionately to another person, where I'm not, where I'm not racing ahead to the deal we could do or whatever, and I'm feeling that conflict in my head because, you know, it's it's you know it's it, it's I can feel the intoxication of power, you know, when people, yeah, oh, can you do this thing, and and it's interesting conflict I'm having. So the, it's an amazing thing because anyone that's ever given any sort of public speech knows that it's scary as hell oh, and yeah. the rush that you get when all eyes are on you yeah uh, there's something that feeds the ego there that is intoxicating and for me one of the reasons i like doing it is it gives me an opportunity to practice what i preach and mm-hmm. um because i i care about the outcome i want to deliver i want to make an impact um, I want to feel important. Um, I think those are human qualities. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of my clients go through. So it allows me to have a little more empathy uh, for what they go through uh, on a stage. The, the question that I was really wrestling with when you were talking about look, you know, noticing into somebody and you struck a, a chord with me when you were talking about my audience and what is it that, how can I serve them? And I, I was thinking about this and one of the reasons I was really drawn to chat with you is because I don't think it's any secret that we have massive issues with depression and suicide, certainly in this country. Um, our young people, uh, the numbers there are, are, are just staggering. Um, when you consider that they drink less, they smoke less, um, they have sex less, but yet depression and suicide are up. And so I know that there are a lot of young people that listen to this podcast and um, I've worked with clients before who are performers who have gotten into a, a suicidal state and I've been sort of the first line of defense where that comes up and I've been the one that has to say, hey, mm-hmm. man, hey, you got to go get help. And as I say that, it gives me chills because um, it's a terrifying position to be in, but also a uh, a really, really important position to be in. And I think most humans throughout their life will experience that, um, unfortunately. So. I would love to give you a megaphone and a platform to share what you know and also what misconceptions are out there and, you know, advice, thoughts for people that are either going through that in their own head or if you go back to the we that you talked about and, and how you see the world and from, from your seat and, and your position, how can we help people um, when they're in that, in, that, in that place? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because... Um... Uh, I'm always trying to improve how do you get through to people like that. And, and I think my experience with Nancy, where when, she, when we made eye contact and, uh, and by, feeling, by her feeling felt, she felt less alone. And what I realized is when I would be giving her advice or solutions, it was more to deal with my own anxiety, like, oh, God, you know, what is she going to do? And uh, as I deal with veterans, the more that I, I just tune into uh, their feelings with, without a solution, without rushing to put them in a bucket, they start to feel, as one said, you make me feel like the person inside the patient. And I said, what, what does that mean? And he said, most of us veterans feel like patients who are carved up into billable procedures, none of whom speak to each other. And then when we get frustrated because it's been three months to get this appointment, you know, the moronic psychiatrist says, let's throw in anger management just to be safe. <laughs> and so 
but, but what I've come up with, and I'm glad people are listening, is, and, and uh, I'm going to see if I can get this out to suicide hotlines, is if someone, uh, uh, first of all, first of all, don't wait. A, a lot of people who are suicidal and depressed uh, don't really reach out. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that they've made it known. There are certain symptoms. They start giving away their prized possessions. They... Uh, they actually start to feel better right before it because they see I'm going to get I'm going to get some relief I'm going to get out of this. But I think what you can do if you're worried about someone and they start to talk to you, here are the here are the exact tactical steps. They start to talk to you about something, and you focus on four things because you're trying to get them to get things off their chest. What you focus on is hyperbole, like awful or horrendous or scary. You focus on inflection. They raise their voice and they talk louder. They talk softer. You focus on adjectives, which is a way of embellishing a noun. Or you focus on adverbs, which is a way of embellishing a verb. Those four things give you a little taste of their emotion. So when they mention something like uh, uh, awful or horrendous, let them finish what they're saying and then say, say more about the awful. Say more about the horrendous. So instead of out of our anxiety rushing in and saying, well, you know, I, I'm sure you'll be okay or it's probably nothing or let it go, uh, which we, we're saying to deal with our own anxiety, dig down a little bit. And I have a book called Just Listen, and it's about how do you cause people to feel felt. So you dig down, they open up a little bit more, and here's the new thing I'm adding. Say to them, uh, I got five words for you. And they're going to go, what? Because you're trying to do a pattern interrupt in their head, and you know about that. And they're going to go, what? Yeah, I got five words for you. Hurt, afraid, angry, Shame, uh, shame, lonely, tired. That's six words. And they're going to say, what? And you repeat them. And you can say, do you feel any of those? And they're going to say, yes. And then you say, tell me about it. Because, see, there's evidence, uh, a lot of it out of UCLA, a psychologist named Matthew Lieberman, that when you get people to express their feelings accurately, the agitation in their brain goes down. There's something inside their, uh, our brains called the amygdala, which is in our emotional brain. And when it gets all overstimulated, it can do something called an amygdala hijack. So we can't think, we just react. So when you can enable someone to share those words and tell you a story, so which, which of those are you feeling? And it could be just tired or shame. Well, tell me more about that. And then what happens is, is if you can be that first-class noticer as they're talking to you, you don't jump in to reassure them. What you're going to feel is they're getting it off their chest. And as they get it off their chest, their oxytocin goes up because they're bonding with you. Their cortisol goes down their amygdala goes back into their holster and they can start to think of options. Could you follow that? 
Yeah, it, there's like three different things running on in my head right now. The first is uh, when you mentioned shame, we talk about fear of failure a lot in sports and in performance. Um, if you go to a commencement speech, you'll say don't fear failure. And in my experience, it's rarely fear of failure. It's most usually fear of embarrassment or fear of shame that paralyzes people. And so I always try to go to that next level because failure is an outcome, but shame and embarrassment is, is inward. And, um, I think that's the reason why, you know, when they do studies of what people are, are afraid of most, they're afraid of what the two of us do, which is public speaking more than they're afraid of death. And, you know, I think it's really because we're wired to not be embarrassed or ashamed because we're tribal. And if we embarrass ourselves, we're kicked out of the tribe and, and we go hungry. So it, it's, it's biological uh, as much as it is psychological. So that was one thing that came out for me um, as you were talking is fear of shame. And then the other is um, labeling and the power of labeling and naming. Uh, I see the same thing physiologically with progressive muscle relaxation. So those golfers, just like you, anyone that's played golf, I'm sure even you've had these experiences, golf contents the body pretty easily and pretty quickly. And an amazing thing happens that if you feel tension, let's just say in your shoulders, and then you tense your shoulders up into your ears, and then you relax it, it actually relaxes the body. Um, so I think naming can occur in the mind, but also in the body. Uh, and then amygdala hijack is one of the most fascinating elements for me. And for a long time in my work, I focused on the mind and only on the mind and on mindset. How, 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 how? And uh, over time, I've really learned that we carry stuff somatically as well. And uh, we carry it in the body. And when the mind gets hijacked, the body also uh can get hijacked. And um, so I'm glad that you brought up emotion because a lot of times we just speak in, in terms of mental uh, or in terms of physical. And I think emotional is such a big distinction uh, and emotions drive so much of our behavior. Going back to what you talked about earlier from a young age, we, we respond emotionally. Um, mm -hmm. And then I know for me, I I've always been challenged by anger and I can tell you where the anger feels in my body. Um, and so being creating noticing around that allows me to then respond rather than react uh, to your point earlier. Um, so from a, from a uh, depression standpoint and a suicidal standpoint, what do you theorize is going on with, with our society today? Um, I believe, and I'm not an expert at this, but I believe that, you know, we are healthier, uh, you know, safer, you know, financially more secure than ever. Uh, but yet the numbers on, on anxiety, the numbers on depression, the numbers on suicide are, are as high as ever. Um, I would love to just hear your perspective on, on why that may be. Well, I think now you have to take this with a grain of old fogey salt. Um, I think patience, tenderness, and compassion are becoming extinct. Hmm. And that's what, and, and I think oxytocin is going out of the fabric of people's minds. So people become very project oriented. They have this FOMO. I think people have really sacrificed the bonding of oxytocin for the adrenaline rush because the adrenaline rush is so exciting, makes you feel powerful. But I think what happens is, you know, when you're feeling when you're feeling depressed or suicidal, you don't want a solution. You want comfort. 
And what's happened is a lot of people don't know how to give comfort. And as you say, a lot of people are actually afraid when they're around someone who's suicidal or depressed. Uh, and so instead of making it more comfortable, they'll often make it worse by saying, well, it'll be okay. You know, uh, we'll just change what you're thinking. And what's happening is that person is reaching out for a loving comfort that I think is going out of society. How do we, how do we bring that back? How do we make that more prevalent? I think the key is you have to have the personal experience of the power of it. So I'll, I'll give you something. This may, not, may or may not apply to you, uh, uh, but uh, often uh, when I work with men who are you know, high achievers, I'll say, uh, do you ever get into uh, disagreements with your wife or your spouse? And if she's coming from female energy, it feels more like, uh, you know, she doesn't want your advice or solutions. And a lot of guys, their way of showing care is to be responsible, so they give advice and solutions. And, and, and by the way, one of the reasons why women outlive men is because when, we're under, when people are under stress, their cortisol is high, men pull away uh, because they're a little bit paranoid, they feel vulnerable and don't trust other men. And then they come and master the stress and they attack the hill, but their cortisol stays high. So blood pressure is up, heart attacks, all those things. Whereas women uh, in, in inherently know that oxytocin is the antidote to cortisol. So when a woman feels felt, her cortisol, her oxytocin goes up, her cortisol goes down. Uh, her amygdala calms down, and then she can come up with answers. The problem is that when she gets, when she's venting, uh, it agitates the man, and the man says, you better calm down. Well, the man gives her a solution or advice that she doesn't want. So here's a tip that I've given men that they said, this is magical, Mark. Is if you're in a, uh, if you agree with what I'm saying, if you're in the middle of a argument, uh, and uh, what's your wife's first name? Robin. Um, so if it's heading in that direction, you know, and you can feel yourself tense and you're frustrated and she's, you know, kind of upset. Uh, at some point, you say exactly this. You say, Robin, this tone, Robin, what? I get a way to make it better. What? I get a way to make it better. Just play along with me. What? Now just play along with me. If it doesn't go well, we'll just get back into the argument. What? And then you look her right in the eye. Um. Uh, and you say, uh, say this to me, uh, Brian, uh, and you look right in the eye, say this to me, Brian, when we get into one of these arguments and you tell me to calm down or you tell me and you want to give me advice, you're actually making it worse. Uh, and when you do that, it's making me want to scream more at you. So can you put a sock in it, Brian? You think you're trying to make the situation better and you are so clueless. Can you just, you know, put a sock in it because you think you're solving it and you're just making it worse. So can you say that to me, Robin? And she's going to say, what? And you give her something like that. And then, and what will happen is you're not on the defensive because you're, you're, you're the one uh, facilitating her getting stuff off her chest. And then when she says it, 
and you're not getting defensive or telling her she has to calm down, she will start to giggle. Trust me on this. I mean, it's, it's called mediated catharsis. When you mediate their ability to get stuff off their chest that they normally wouldn't say because it'll make a bad situation worse. But when you're in there and you step into it, uh, and then I, I'll tell you, as, you as, she'll, as she'll get more off her chest and you feel so centered, if you say, while we're at it, uh, tell me about me when I'm really at my worst. And so you're doing a rope-a-dope. You're Muhammad Ali and Zaire. You're doing a rope-a-dope. But I'll tell you, it's, but if you follow what I'm saying, it's a way of getting the other person to get things off their chest and out of harm's way. I'm, I'm getting what you're saying. The funny thing about my wife and, and my relationship is that I tend to actually be the emotional one and she tends to be the stoic one. And I be, ah, yeah, so you, uh, it's a role <laughs> reversal, but it makes sense to me. And so I, I always laugh. I always smile because, um, I'm probably the more, um, I need to get it off my chest, uh, more than she's able to really hold stuff. And, uh, anyway, uh, but oh, I think, so, so you, you can try it on her. You can yeah, say, Rob and I have an idea. Say this to me. <laughs> Robin, say this to me. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Brian, yeah. When you get all emotionally yeah. and tightly wounded, yeah. uh, wound and all this sort of stuff, you know, you really make the situation worse. And uh, can you really get it together? Because we got young kids and they're probably listening to it through the wall. So blah, 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 blah. So whatever it is. But your facilit- when you facilitate the breakthrough, it'll re- relieve it. So I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a tip. This is the best thing I've said. Uh, I hope I've said something of value. It's the best quote I've ever heard in my life. A friend of mine named Dr. Shawnee Duperon, she has something, I think it's called Project Forgive, and it's been nominated for a Nobel Prize. And her quote is, because you have some anger issues, is forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never receive. Forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never receive. I've been using that with my dad, who died in 95, and and in my mind, he's saying to me, um, you know, if I didn't ever tell you how proud I was of you as a person, not just what you did, you know, if I never told you that I'm just amazed at the human being you become, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I was too worried about, you know, you being able to earn a living, me earning a living. And so when I imagine him saying that to me, I I get emotional and say, you know, I'm sorry that I had a chip on my shoulder. You know, I'm sorry what that cost us. And I just, and I get emotional in a good way. I just kind of get sad and say, God, what a shame that we didn't have that conversation. But accepting the apology you will never receive, to me, it's brilliant. And, and if I were coaching you, I would also say, and thank the chip because it got you to where you are today um, mm-hmm. and an appreciation for who you are today. Um, so without that chip, who knows who you become? So um, I want to wind down by just first saying thank you. Uh, this is a different conversation than a lot of the other ones that I've had uh, on the show. And I think it's a really important one because as I said earlier, we are humans first and performers second. So uh, we could call the show Intentional Humans, uh, but it just wouldn't be 
uh, as specific. Um, but I think all performers are humans first. So uh, it's important to talk about human challenges, human struggles. And none of us are, um, you know, none of us can avoid them in the future. Uh, we're not immune to any of those challenges. And we all uh, have had good moments and bad moments in our life. And um, if you live long enough, you're going to have some some sad moments and some emotion uh, and some anger as well. So um, I want to thank you for the time. Um, we did not get to a lot of the other stuff that we had talked about on our pre-call. Um, but I the, the biggest thing I wanted to unpack with you is really around depression and suicide. And uh, so I'm glad that we really went into a lot of deep places there. And uh, you provided some amazing, uh, really tangible thoughts on how people can benefit uh, from handling those types of situations in the future. I wanted to give you a megaphone to promote uh, whatever it is that you're up to. I know you're you're on social media. I know you write a lot. So let people know where they can find you uh, and learn more about the work that you're doing. Okay, so... Uh, I have 500,000 Twitter followers and uh, I have, I have, I've have one tweet pinned at the top of at Mark Goulston at M A R K G O U L S T O M. I've created a compassionate touched by suicide community. So that tweet says, uh, have you ever known of or known or known someone who committed suicide. It's supposed to be died by suicide, but I didn't know it at the time. In your community, your school, your I think your church, your temple, and um, it's uh, it has over 800 comments of people just sharing things about the people who have killed themselves in their lives. It has 1.1 million impressions. And so what I'm doing is I'm having people reach out to each other to be compassionate. Um, it's not a clinical thing. Uh, my guess is because of the numbers, there's probably some people who since it's been up have died by suicide because a number of people will say, you know, I've tried a few times and wouldn't surprise me if I tried again. And I'll do my best to respond, but, you know, that's a lot to respond to. But if people can go there... Uh, or if you're worried about anyone, it is saving lives too because people feel less alone. So, uh, you know, th that would be a big help. Um, uh, some plugs for some books. I have a book called Talking to Crazy, which is not about mental illness. It's about how to deal with the irrational people that drive you crazy, kind of like what you do to Robin, you know. And uh, uh, and it just she came out. She has to deal with me. I'm the crazy one. And uh, that's she, what I said. Yeah, I yeah. said you drive her crazy. <laughs> But it just came out in paperback last week, and Marshall Goldsmith, a uh, big executive coach, wrote the forward. So I hope people will check that out. And then I have a book called Get Out of Your Own Way, which uh, has been in the top 10 self-help books for 12 years. And it just came out this last month with a updated special paperback edition. And I, rec I recorded the audio book about a month ago. So if people check that out. And then come to markgoulston.com, markgoulston.com. And uh, what my brand's going to be, uh, and I think I'm going to speak on because it's, it encompasses everything, is, and it's very much what we're talking about in this thing, is how to, how to win in business and not lose at life. Because that's a real tragedy when that happens. 
That's a great place to stop. Uh, people can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then the podcast intentional underscore performers. Mark, I just want to thank you for your time, uh, your energy, your passion, and your willingness to go into some dark spaces and, and try to make an impact. So uh, thank you for all your work and look forward to many more intentional conversations in the future. Well, th- thank you for having me on, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Be a first-class noticer. Because when you notice, it's different than looking, watching, and seeing. When you look, watch, and see, you're an observer. But when you actually notice, which is a a keen awareness, it takes you out of yourself uh, and it connects you with the other person.